Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror movies, and horror gaming in general. Okay, so this evening we're going to take a slight diversion from our usual topics, and we're going to talk about TV shows that have been an influence on us, or that have been of interest, or that suit the genre. Yeah, so horror has been quite well served by television over the years, you know, for pretty much as long as television's been around, but... Yeah, but perhaps good horror shows or influential horror shows are quite rare things. And you know, I don't know about you two, but you know, th- th- there's a fairly small number that have made a big inf- impact on me. Um, and yeah, these are the ones I want to talk about. Yeah, very true. Admittedly, when I was thinking up the list, I had to struggle mainly about going through my DVD collection. So I actually rarely watch TV these days. I normally end up picking the box sets up and then watching whole series later at my leisure. Mm-hmm. So actually thinking which ones are a horror series in my collection was an interesting challenge. Most of them seem to be uh, just a wide variety of other genres. Actually picking true horror, that was an interesting challenge. What I found when I was um, considering TV shows was that most of the ones that I was thinking of for my list weren't really horror. They perhaps related to horror themes to some degree, but I think there's a lot of films that are very much in the horror genre. Not so many TV shows. Yeah, but I mean, there, there are a fair few that that are certainly horror infused. Um, but you know, yes, yes, in a lot of cases, you know, they, uh, you, you tend to find your horror mixed in with thrillers or science fiction or you know, other elements. Yeah. Uh, pure horror is comparatively rare, but yeah, you know, it, it's it, it actually seems to be going through a resurgence at the moment. There's there's quite a lot of good horror television around these days. Normally accompanied by drama, thinking of one in particular I won't mention in case someone's already put it on their list. As, as per our last episode that we did on the horror films, we haven't discussed each of our lists, so I'm probably going to end up scribbling away thinking <laughs> I can't mention this one. Can't it, just, it just occurs to me that um, your typical horror film, most people die at the end. You can't really make a series out of that very easily. Well, you can if you do miniseries. Um, and, yeah, I, the, the, again, there have been some very, very good horror miniseries. Um, certainly two out of the, uh, the the three that I've got on my list of miniseries for that reason. Okay, well, let's, well, why don't you get into the first one, Scott? Why don't you kick off? Sure, okay. Well, yeah, th- th- this goes all the way back to 1976. Uh, it's a British series that was very, very influential to the people who saw it, but is probably largely forgotten by television history. There's a TV series called Beasts. You didn't bring it back here. Peter, you didn't bring it back. Say you didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, written by uh, Nigel Neal. Nigel Neal, if the name rings a bell, was the writer behind the Quatermass TV series and films. Uh, he was a very influential television writer. He wrote a lot of TV dramas. Um, he uh, did adaptations. So, for example, he did the TV adaptation of The Woman in Black. Um, and... He worked a lot within the the horror and science fiction fields. Um, And 
Beasts was was something that he did comparatively late in his career, and was was a very unusual series in a lot of respects. Uh, it's it's six standalone episodes, six uh, television plays, I suppose. Each one is about an hour in length, and uh, the the uniting theme of them all is that they're all related in some respect to animals, um, though you know in some cases this is quite tenuous, um, and. Certainly, yeah. I, the 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 other horror fans I've spoken to, of my generation from the UK, who you know were watching TV at that time, remember Beasts as a formative experience. Um, but I, I don't think said about the panel um, of writers. Yes, yeah. I mean, they, they, this was this was a big one. I, I mentioned this on the blog a while back, um, but. There, there was a panel at the Alt Fiction Festival at Derby um, about five or six years ago, maybe more, um, where they had a bunch of horror writers who were about my age. Um, and so they, they, uh, it was Mark Morrison, uh, uh, or Mark Morris, rather, um, Tim Lebon, uh, and I, I can't remember who the other ones were. Um, but, yeah, but, uh, w- one of them started out you know, being asked the question, uh, what was it that, that got you fascinated with horror in the first place? And he started saying, uh, talking about this TV show that he watched when he was a kid that had this this creepy farmhouse and this couple moving into it and they were renovating it and they they dug a hole in the wall. They found this this mummified thing in there. Uh, couldn't work out what it was and, and how you know, more horrific things started happening and how this had traumatised him as a kid. And one of the other writers piped up and said, oh yeah, yeah, that was uh, one, one of the episodes of Beasts, uh, an episode called Baby. And you know, the, the, the guy down the end said, oh yeah, that, that's the one I was going to mention as well. And it turned out that three out of four of them on the panel were really dragged into horror by seeing that one TV uh, episode and it, it was like that for me I was 11 12 years old when I saw it and yeah I, I was already a horror fan but yeah you know, that 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 you know certainly fueled my obsession greatly yeah I would have been nine or ten when I saw it um, on TV when it first came out and I've never heard it discussed before <clears throat> um, but I've always remembered it mm. um, I mean it it really terrified me I, I guess I was just a kid and, and some of my older brothers or sisters were watching it um, and uh, I've always it's always been in my mind over the years, and I've thought about making a scenario based around it. Um, it's almost I didn't know what it was called or, or anything until you brought it up the other day. But um, yeah, and then I watched it again at the weekend with my children. Oh yes, um, it's still pretty powerful. So we'll put a link up on a link to it. So it's all up on YouTube. Um, marvelous. Really yes, yeah. and totally unexplained as well. I mean, there are some implications that it's um sort of something to do with folklore or witches or, or something or, or, or disease even uh, yes yeah um but it's really unexplained and it has that great 70s thing of not really explaining it get to the climax roll the credits yes yeah no yeah no no dinner mall no you know nice tidy wrap up at the end i mean that's it it just it just yeah. leaves you at the worst possible moment yeah I must admit, I do feel like I've been left uh, missing out on this. Also, I know Scott's mentioned Beast quite a few times previously has been quite a um, quite an influential uh, effect, but I've I've seen plenty of Nigel Neal's other works and Quatermass in the Pit, for example, the film version rather than the TV um, rather than the TV original, is one of my favourite blends of sci-fi and horror there is out there, and it's one one of the nice little treasures of my DVD collection at home. 
Mm. Oh, he, he was a marvellous writer. He, he he did very little film work apart from the Quatermass films. The, the, the one other thing that he's <laughs> not known for uh, oh, yes. is is that he did the, uh, the the screenplay for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Before the uh, screenplay got butchered. That yeah, uh, he was very unhappy with the way it turned out and had his <laughs> name taken off the credits. But if you ever watch that, it's a very, very weird film and it's very Nigel Neal in the way that it blends science fiction and horror and just plain weirdness. Happy, happy Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> it reminded me of one that I might have put on my list, actually, when you said about Clay Thomas and the, um, I guess, the most recent, but still in the early 80s, uh, one with John Mills. Oh, um, yeah. oh, that was 70s even. Yeah. Was yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was, um, it was just called Clay Thomas. Yeah. Um, it's sort of set around the stone circles mm-hmm. and everything. And well, the, fourth, really... the fourth one, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The, 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 the four series. One, I think. Yeah, the, the four series were the Quatermass Experiment, uh, Quatermass 2, Quatermass in the Pit, and then Quatermass. Yeah. Matt. Matt Sanderson. Right. Well, admittedly, when we were discussing that we were going to be doing three of these, I had a very hard choice trying to pin down which one I'd have, which three I'd actually go with. I think focusing more on the horror elements themselves, uh, the first one I'll start with um, was... A TV show that I discovered, I think it was when I was doing my GCSEs, um, when I was uh, staying up late night, um, surfing through the um, the channels. There weren't very many of them at that point, but there were five. Um, this one being on Channel 5 itself. Um, seeing an episode... <laughs> Scott shaking his head already. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, Paul and I are old enough to remember Channel 4 being hot new thing. <laughs> anyway. yeah, one, of my, one of my choices is a, a, was, was a new... Uh series on channel four when that just came out so yeah, yeah. three channels three <laughs> well this is this was the hot new thing on five um it was actually the second episode of the second series that i first joined at but it was something that was i don't know it was the style of it in particular one of the characters that walked around with a bowler hat a faceless mask with a barcode down one side and then dressed like otherwise like a civil servant that that image stuck with me it was just something that was know, not, not unnerving but definitely curious and definitely unique i hadn't seen anything quite like that before um, the series in question is called urban gothic from two seasons between 2000 and 2001. The first season was 13 episodes long and dealt with small vignettes of horror. They're only half an hour episodes each, um, set in modern-day London that focused on a variety of, not antagonists, but different elements. There was voodoo, there were vampires, the undead, aliens in one episode, well, that was really, really a bad choice, um, gangsters, etc., but they, they were a mixed bag for the first season, but it led up to the 13th episode, which was quite quite innovative, and it's definitely been a formation on how I write one-shot scenarios if I was ever to do a link thing between them. But it starts with a journalist who's basically investigating stories around London that are a little bit odd, the kind of thing you would find in 14 times. And the more he starts talking about the various articles that he's writing, you realise he's writing the articles about the first 12 episodes of the season. And that it's then that he effectively becomes the storyteller of London, that he is chosen by London as a sentient being that has a living, breathing heart, chooses him to be its repository of information and stories and tell its story to the world. 
and that as a journalist he's perfectly suited for that. It costs him somewhat greatly in emotional terms, which then, I'm not sure if they were planning on doing a second season at that point, but effectively forms the metaplot for the second season, which has a lot more linked stories rather than being individual episodes. And it was the second episode of the second season, the first one that I saw, an episode called Membrane, that was very much a mix of sci-fi and horror. It's about a team that went into a uh, research facility that had been conducting genetic experiments. And it was that there'd been various lies told to them that, yeah, you're the first people on site, so-and-so, we just haven't heard them from them for a while, when they realised, no, there'd actually been an armed response unit um, gone in there so far, and there'd been a lot more waiting for them there than they were anticipating, including this um, member of the Institute, the, the cult, um, the man dressed as a civil servant with this white faceless mask with a barcode down one side. That I thought, that's, that's the kind of really atypical horror antagonist group that I would like to use in most scenarios. And so it culminated up to a wonderful cliff cliffhanger at the end of the second season. Unfortunately never got a third. Oh. So it left it left it unresolved, but in, in a good way I think. Hmm. I remember the name of the series, hmm. but I don't ever recall watching an episode. No, I saw them all about about seven or eight years ago, and yeah, I, there's a lot to like about the series. It's you know, it's a very imaginative series, and I I, I found the writing very uneven. Yeah, you know, oh, so, so, so some of the episodes are you know simply awful. The first one in particular is a bit poor, but there are there are certain moments like Membrane, for example, um, Dollhouse Burns, um, Sandman, the first uh, the first episode, just um, simple enough premise that you've got a series of um, individuals who want to win a car. So the idea is that they stay awake, and it's basically whoever has their hand left touching the car last wins. Mm. So it's like an endurance test, yeah. and it's the the weirdness that they experience when the Sandman comes for them. Hmm. I say highly recommend it. It is on DVD as well. Cool. Paul. Well, my uh, my first program is takes us back all the way into the sixties. Um, time before we were born. <laughs> well, maybe uh, not. <laughs> or, or Paul. <laughs> <laughs> no, before, before. Um, this is not so much a horror show. I think there were some elements of horror in it. It's more weirdness, really. I would say. Um, and it's the Twilight Zone. Oh, classic. Mm. It's actually fifty-nine when it started. Yeah. Um. The, the, the episode, that I, I kind of narrowed it down to one episode that I remember watching, um, I think on the reruns back in the, the mid-80s. There was, there was a whole period back in the mid-80s, I recall, uh, they'd show late night on BBC Two, maybe on Saturday nights or something, they'd show an episode or two, which was great. You'd get back from the pub and, and stick it on and, and watch this old black and white show. And the one that I remember was 100 Yards Over the Rim, um, first shown in... 1961, um, starring uh, Joan Crawford, among others. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much a, a weird tale, really, of a, of a guy crossing uh, perhaps New Mexico in the 1840s. Um, his uh, son is sick in the wagon, and in desperation, he heads up over the rim, just taking his rifle with him over the, over the crest of a, a sandy dune. And as he crosses over the dune, we get the narration. And uh, it's Rob, Rod Serling just talking about, you know, this desperate guy walking just 100 yards over the rim. And then the camera, as always, pans around. And there's Rod Serling stood <laughs> next to the, the covered wagon doing the intro. 
And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, you'll ride up front in this wagon on a trek west. Your itinerary is across the Great Plains over the Rockies to a point in New Mexico. And you'll ride alongside Mr. Cliff Robertson in a strange tale of a handful of American pioneers who made a detour in time and found themselves one afternoon on the fringe of the future. Our story is called A Hundred Yards Over the Rim, and believe me, it's quite a view. I hope we'll see you then. And I, I love a good, um, you know, uh, monologue. Is a monologue? Is that right word? Yeah. When it's done against the film? Yeah. Which is why I like the proper version of Blade Runner, of course. <laughs> you are yes. outnumbered severely. Yes, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we do apologise for Paul's opinion on this subject. <laughs> is that the only subject? <laughs> no, I mean, we, we apologise for Paul an awful lot. But, <laughs> but, but this is one of the most common things we have to apologise for. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and then he, he stumbles down over the rim and um, finds himself walking along a highway, and there's a massive truck coming, and um, somehow he's in modern day. Of course, it's actually 1961, which is like 52 years ago, but nevertheless, um, kind of modern day. Um, it looks a lot like Roy's calf on Highway 66, Route 66 to me, um, which I visited a few years ago down in California, um, and I keep seeing in films ever since because uh, it's kind of out um, in the deserts, um, yes, it's in a number of films. Lovely, a lovely location. He's just a man out of time, really, um, and he gets some penicillin, and uh, for his own injuries, and then he heads back, and he's pursued by the police, and he finds himself just going back over the rim, and he's back with his family. Not that much happens, but it's the atmosphere and the strangeness, the weirdness really of, of of these events there's no explanation to it um when he's there in the modern day he reads of his son becoming a doctor and dying well in, in the in um what would be the future to him um and i think when i come to write scenarios that's the kind of feel i go for really i i, I i'm more attracted to the kind of the weirdness and the trying to put in um, strange anomalies and twists rather than necessarily the kind of horror genre, mm. um, which is why I'm, I guess I would hold up, you know, Philip K. Dick and, and writers such as that um, as writers of kind of weird tales, really. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they, the Twilight Zone was a great show for writers, anyway, because I mean, they had so many great writers yeah. on the staff. I mean, they, uh, Charles Beaumont wrote an awful lot of them, and he was a, a fantastic short story writer as well as uh, as well as a screenwriter. Um, and uh, Richard Matheson wrote for it a lot as yes. well, who sadly yes. died the other day. Yeah. Um, and and of course Rod Serling himself uh, was was quite a, a prolific writer for the show and, and quite a good one. And the Shatner was in it. Yes, yeah. What was that? Hor- well, yeah, he was in Horror at 20,000 Feet, wasn't he? Which was a Richard Matheson story. Yeah. One of his first ones, I can't remember the name of the episode, but it was essentially where they found a fortune-telling machine and they kept asking it questions. I remember he was in that. It was a little evil um, devil's head bobbing away on oh, top yes. of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So many lovely stories, and just so self-contained, just like a one-shot um, called Cthulhu scenario. You start off, you think, you know, it seemed, often it seems quite normal and then something will happen and you kind of think no this doesn't feel right and then i kind of think i know what's going on and then you get a revelation at the end yes um which is a great format for a 25 minute show or a short story or a scenario 
did you ever see uh, Serling's follow-up to that, uh, The Night Gallery? No. The, the, the Night Gallery, I, it almost made my list. Um, it, it, it was a series that Serling did in the 1970s, and unlike The Twilight Zone, it was in colour. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it had a lot of adaptations of horror stories in it, including a couple of Lovecraft stories, Pigment's Model in Cool Air. Right. Um, it had a Clark Ashton Smith adaptation. Uh, Return of the Sorcerer. Yeah. Uh, Professor Peabody's last lecture, which, <laughs> which oh, was I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's pretty funny. Uh, yes, which is a, a comic take on the Cthulhu mythos, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's a fun series. It, it's I mean, the Twilight Zone is pretty good all the way through. I mean, there's a few Duff episodes. The Night Gallery, a lot of the episodes really don't stand up, and you know, if you go, for example, and, and look for the episode of you know the adaptation of Pigman's Model, that is frankly awful. Well, I have to say, I watched. Uh... This episode, 100 Yards Over the Rim, with my son, 15-year-old son today, and his comments were, well, I'm really surprised that that was so good, um, mm. given that it was made 1961. Oh, good writing. very impressed that it stood up so well. Yeah, good, good, good writing is timeless. Mm. Number two, Scott. Yes, number two for me. Um, we move on to 1994 now, and a TV show from Denmark. Grunden under Rigshospitalet er gammel muse. Her lå blegedammene engang. Her gik blegemændene og fugtede deres store lærder i det lave vand for at lægge til blegene. Um, I, I won't attempt to pronounce the Danish name. It's a, it's a simple name. Yeah, I just don't. Okay, it's, it, the Danish name is... I, I don't know if the G is soft or not, so it's either rigid or, or rigid. Um, but the English name, uh, which is much better known in the UK and possibly elsewhere, uh, is The Kingdom. Mm. Um, which is, I, it, it was supposed to be an ongoing series, but I, I sort of class it as a miniseries because there are the two short series of them. Um, and it's um, a, a weird combination of things. It, it's, it's a horror story set in a hospital uh, with a lot of black comedy in it and a lot of soap opera elements um, and, and a lot of stuff that's just plain farcical. Um, and it's made by Lars von Trier. Uh, who has, has become quite well known in, in uh, later years for, for doing a bunch of very provocative films. Uh, recently, you know, things like Melancholia, Antichrist, uh, and you know, I, I, Antichrist, I think, is a, a fantastic horror film. Uh, Cabin and... in the Woods. <laughs> yes. It uses the Cabin yeah. in the Woods. Yes, yes, I yeah. suppose it does. Oh, very much so, yeah. 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 Um, and some classic kind of genre horror scenes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but and the fox. Yes. Talking fox. Can't get that. You, you can't have a good horror film without a talking fox. So, I... Chaos reigns. <laughs> but I, a lot of a lot of Trier stuff, or Von Trier, or whatever you want to call him, um, he, he adopted the Von fairly late on in his career. Uh, a I lot might of, do that, actually. Yeah. Well, or Von Fricker. Yeah, I, I, that's got a certain ring to it. Um... <laughs> it's got such a loud ring, it's completely killed my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> talking Fox. Yeah, talking, but no, I wasn't going to talk about the fucking Talking Fox. <laughs> <laughs> continue. Yes. Um, so, while, while a lot of Von Trier stuff has touched upon genre elements before, yeah, it's, it's rare that he's he's done something that's, that's kind of exclusively a, a genre film or show. Mm. And... Yeah, the, the kingdom, I suppose, isn't really an exception there, but it is at its heart a ghost story. 
um, you know, it, it's a uh, it's set in this ultra modern uh, Danish hospital uh, where it's built um, on this old marsh that's got a lot of history to it, uh, and you know, it, it, the the hospital is populated partly by the unquiet dead, and um, but there are all sorts of other strange horror elements that come in as well. Um, strange medical experiments going on, uh, macabre pranks being pulled by students, and um, uh, 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 seances, and a, a lot of a lot of strange black comedy. It is quite a funny series in places, um, and. Yeah, as I said, unfortunately, it didn't go on for quite as long as it should have. Uh, the, the the first series, which was initially all, all I'd seen, I, I didn't get to see the second series until quite recently. Um, but the first series is comparatively self-contained. It's got a couple of cliffhangers in it, but you know, it works fairly well. The second series expanded on those elements and set up what should have been quite an interesting third series. But unfortunately, before Von Trier got to film it, the lead actor died. Uh, and by the time he was trying to sort out other things, another four members of the cast died. So, you know, at that stage, they gave up all plans to, to actually mm. continue the series, uh, which is a shame. Um, but, yeah, I, I didn't really go into the gaming side when I was talking about Beasts, and I should have done there. And I'll, I'll talk about uh, The Kingdom first. You know, from a gaming point of view, what you know, what what this, this kind of shows me, uh, or the way it's influenced me, is the fact that... And certainly when I run horror scenarios at conventions, I tend to mix a lot of genre elements. Um, a lot of the stuff that I run, though it is very grim, tends to have black comic elements all the way through. Um, yeah, it, it, an ideal game for me will have someone both cringing and laughing most of the way through. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll mix up and you know put in drama and soap opera elements and science fiction elements and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's rare for me to do something that's just straight horror. Uh, and, and, and yeah, the, the kingdom typifies my love of that. And, and just, just jumping back to Beasts, I mean, the reason why I chose Beasts as an influence was that uh, um, it, 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 you know, each episode is, as I said, a very short little uh, mini play, a one hour play. Uh, and, and to me, that, that encapsulates kind of the pacing of one shots. Mm. They're short, intense character pieces. Uh, and they they push towards you know a, a definite horrifying conclusion each time, and you know that that's really what I want for my games. Yeah, this does bear on hazard to ask, what did you think of the Stephen King adaptation? Oh, God, I was going to mention that. Yes, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This may be more familiar to some of the listeners. There, there was an adaptation of the Kingdom called Kingdom Hospital that was done uh, by Stephen King for U.S. television uh, about ten years ago. Was it something like that? It followed a lot of the storylines from the kingdom, but it added in certain other elements, uh, like a psychic anteater. Uh, no, I'm not making that up. There really was a fucking <laughs> psychic anteater in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I didn't hate it, but... Um, I didn't to talk. Um, I, it did telepathically, I think. Oh, the last film trailer would have approved of that, I'd like to think. <laughs> oh, yeah, the guy kept seeing it in his dreams, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. To, to me, it lost a lot of the, a lot of the charming weirdness that the kingdom had. Uh, and it, it introduced a lot of disjointed, just wacky shit that Can't didn't believe really the fit. TV adaptation of Stephen King's work didn't really work. <laughs> well, it wasn't his work to begin with. It was his, his, him adapting another source. Fair enough. 
And no, I must admit, I didn't particularly like it either. I watched the first three or four episodes and then turned it off. Yeah, I, I never made it all the way through the series. But, you know, if you get a chance to see the original Danish series, if you can go with subtitles, you know, don't be put off if you didn't like the Stephen King one. It's uh, it's a very different beast. Uh, yeah, it doesn't need ants for a start. As long as I don't watch it in a cinema, that'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, a side anecdote here. We went to go and, uh, between Scott and a few other friends, went to go and see the original version of Let the Right One In. Yeah, the subtitles and reading for me is fairly hypnotic. I remember being elbowed and so basically told to wake up while sitting down for five minutes for you is fairly hypnotic. <laughs> 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 I, and and to be fair, I don't think I'm so much telling you to wake up as to stop snoring. <laughs> yeah, that's all the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least you weren't talking in your sleep. <laughs> yeah. That's another running though for another time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, my number two. Indeed. All right. Um, I seem to be going for a lot more modern ones compared to uh, compared to the rest of the list. So hopefully I'm um, hopefully I'm getting in my good ones and taking off other people's <laughs> lists as they come up. Um. Moving forward to 2003, a series that was criminally cut down before it was supposed to, uh, before it was due to resolve that ran between 2003 and 2005, that I think personally had a influence much in a similar way that the Ninth Gate has an influence on me. And you start off with, in the case of the Ninth Gate, it's a single character that starts off a lonesome individual that is. Um, Sort of just devious, underhanded. Frankly, he's a bit of a shit. That is then progresses through the film and ends up being a murdering, devil, borderline devil worshipping, obsessed, driven individual. And you love him. And yet, in this particular series, you have two characters. One that starts off as a man on the run that seems maybe a little bit of an angry young man type persona that starts off as the bad... You think he fits the pigeonhole as the bad guy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a pastor, a preacher, that's the embodiment of good, although some some odd things start happening around him. One or two. Yeah, yeah like coins flying out of a girl's mouth, I think, was the first the first one that manifested yes. in, the, in the shoes. And then by the end... by at least midway through to towards the end of the first season and going on to the end of the second season, where if I'm resolved, you realise that they are, in fact, the diametric opposite of each other. That man on the run is actually a force of good, and that pastor is, in fact, a man that is the avatar of evil. Um, the TV series in question is Carnival. In desperate times, the good Lord looks over the flock and chooses one man to inspire the multitudes, one man to accomplish the impossible. And who are we to judge the wisdom of the Almighty? Um, on H, um, that was broadcast on HBO, so back in two thousand and three. A show that maybe it suffers from a couple of things that some of the American, more recent American shows, a bit like Walking Dead season two, seem to suffer from, is that they sent, it dragged on in places. Mm. But overall, the story was amazing. You had a setting in the in the Dust Bowl in the thirties, so a wonderful, evocative visual setting. That a travelling carnival is moving from one town to another, playing, well, basically doing their performances, whereupon they pick up this man on the run, and then start to realise that things are starting to happen around them. Essentially, the man in question, he's a, a way a faith healer, in the sense that he draws the life essence out of the world around him and channels it into an individual to basically replace their um, to repair their ailments. Um, one scene I think was that he 
held up a girl who had a broken leg, and you just saw a whole field of corn die around him. Yes, there was another one where he was healing someone in a lake, wasn't there? Oh, the all these fish. dead fish come up to the surface. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Yes, a wonderful imagery in that. But so it's the main the main impact for me is that it's how you can shift perception over that period of time to make something that's good seem even and vice versa. Because it means there aren't anything is not black and white, there's just multiple shades of grey that you can pepper throughout. I say it's, it's a wonderful series and I say wholeheartedly recommend it. So oh. cr- criminally cut down so they had to rush the second season towards a conclusion. But one of the images that definitely lingered with me is from the well, actually the first few opening minutes of the episode of the, the first episode of the second season where i think it's jack i think his name is the boy oh, i can't remember it's yeah. a long time yeah likewise but um he's there's a man behind a curtain in one of the uh, one of the carriages in the traveling circus that reaches out you very rarely if ever see him but his hand reaches out and grabs the boy and gives him a vision of what's to come and he finds himself on a flat plane with a tower at the far end with a flashing red light as um, as the klaxon sounding. It's the Trinity nuclear tests that would be taking place in the timeline about maybe ten years from where um, from where they are now. And as the storm as the blast storm rushes over him, he sees the pastor kneeling down, looking into the wind, looking up with jet black eyes and basically warning him of who told you the fire that is to come before he snaps back into the real world. And just the moments of surrealism and same with the music overpowering over on that it was just a just a wow moment that was so something i really wanted to aspire to when i write stuff my second choice is from 1984 from the uh um soon before mentioned channel four uh when it launched i believe that was about 83 84 mm-hmm. maybe 82 it was around that kind of time when so, england got a fourth channel yeah i'm pretty sure it was around 82 i was in boarding school at the time yeah uh, it was a curious series, again, more science fiction than anything else, but it did um, riff off of a number of uh, horror genres. Uh, a series called They Came From Somewhere Else, uh, a mini-series, six episodes, rarely, if ever, repeated, uh, now available on YouTube, so I can link to that. It told the story of a, a small town, England, um, called Middleford. Um, and it was pretty much a sitcom, really. Strange things were happening, um, and it slowly kind of built up, and it got stranger and stranger as it went along, um, to the point where the characters found a, some kind of radioactive briefcase and looked in it to find the truth. Some dude's head exploded, very much in the in the style of uh, Scanners. <laughs> Um, the Cronenberg film is obviously a, a reference to that. Uh, and then in the final episode, um, we learn we learn the truth. And the truth is, as, as it goes on, it, it suddenly becomes apparent that nobody has ever gone beyond the ring road <laughs> in this small town. Nobody's ever travelled further than that. Um, and the final revelation is that it's a prison colony on a satellite orbiting Earth. And all the people on, in the, in the town are inmates in this in this prison colony, and nice. got their minds wiped, and they're slowly kind of remembering, and then something has, has come among them um, that is causing them to uh, kind of go wrong. There are zombies and exploding heads, and uh, mm. yeah, it's great. I mean, it's very kind of low budget British TV in in in, in its best uh, form, really. I thought. They came. 
but, um, but but in terms of the content, it sounds an awful lot like the kind of Call of Cthulhu scenario you write. Yeah, I mean that's what I mean. It's been that's been a very big influence on me. Yeah. So I think what I kind of go for with the the Twilight Zone, they come from, they came from somewhere else. Philip K. Dick is. Um, they're trying to present a normal world or, or an, a world that characters can buy into where you think you know what's going on and then having something other um, that can be revealed through kind of revelations during play. Really. I think a lot of Lovecraft's work and Call of Cthulhu is kind of about revelations to the, to the players about what's really going on um, to, the, to the characters in his stories about what, what reality really is. Number three, Mr. Dorwood. Uh, yes, number three. Um, okay, so th th this one was a Japanese series from uh, 2004. I'm not usually much of an anime fan um there's there's very few anime series that i i've really got into I, I i don't dislike it on principle it's just that i find a lot of the animes i've seen quite kind of silly and twee um but yeah there, there are a few that have really resonated with me and and the, this one a uh, series called paranoia agent uh I, I i found um really quite disturbing in places uh, it, it, it was made by a Japanese uh, uh, animator, director, writer uh, called Satoshi Kon, uh, who made uh, a number of films, animated films, which were fantastic. He did a film called Perfect Blue, uh, which in a lot of ways uh, sort of um, anticipated Black Swan, um, except with a, a singing idol in Japan. Um, and... Uh, he did a, a, an adaptation of a Japanese novel called Paprika, uh, which is fantastic about um, uh, a, a psychotherapist who goes into people's dreams and uh, helps them out. You know, it helps you know, bring them to sanity through their dreams. Uh, that, that gets really quite surreal and nightmarish. But a Dreamland scenario in there. Yeah, absolutely. There's an, there's an Outer Limits episode that pretty much does exactly that. Oh it? yeah, and there, there was a uh, an old American film. Well. Early early eighties American film called Dreamscape, which did the same thing. Careful, Scott, that's not old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Paranoia Agent is, I it, it it's a series that that ties in idea wise with a number of you know horror or weird games that you could play. Maybe not so much Call of Cthulhu, but there, there are elements of it which certainly would tie in very heavily to Mage and to Unknown Armies. Um, it, it's it's primarily about you know, people's obsessions shaping reality, uh, or you know, in a lot of cases, people's nightmares and delusions uh, having knock-on effects. Um, but there are lots of little stories tucked within, you know, covering things from um, you know police corruption to identity crises to um, the, the, my favourite episode uh, out of the lot. It's it's almost standalone within the series. Is about uh, three people who met on a chat room 
uh, and um, decided to commit suicide. Uh, a, a chat room for people who were suicidal, and they plotted their joint suicide through it. And there's a, there's a forest in Japan that's notorious for this. I, I can't remember the name of it. But you know, apparently people go to this forest to commit suicide and just hang themselves in the trees. And you know, it's about their journey there and the things that happen to them en route. And it, mm. it, it becomes really quite nightmarish. That, that sounds like a whole indie game you could write about that, Scott. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Other influences I was thinking of, uh, probably the, uh, the German title, Der Tots King. Or... Oh, Der Tots King. That's it. Yeah. yeah. There was the bridge in that was, uh, oh. they, they just, uh, they didn't do a story segment for it, it was just the names of everyone that had thrown themselves off the bridge. Yes, Der Tots King uh, is uh, a film that was made by um, the, the, the notorious German indie filmmaker Jörg Buchgereit, uh, who's probably better known for Necromantic. But The Todas King is my favourite one of his films, and yes, it's it's a series of short films, well, strung together to feature film length, all about suicide. Seven of them, I think. If you look out at the sky now, you can see the bats. If you look oh, well. Again, just, just... Oh, yeah. See it? Yeah. Are you keep, are you keep? Little bayakis <laughs> flying around their house. Yeah, they come out about this time at dusk. Yes. Oh, well, we've got some guest stars. <laughs> <laughs> um... I think it was seven for uh, seven shorts to represent each day of the week. Well, it was supposed to be seven, but uh, I think they ran out of money at some stage, so no, I, don't, I don't think there's quite seven. But uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. Actually, thinking of that, um, the shorts films, it would have been uh, a, perhaps one to mention that was truly in the horror genre was um, was that series they did of the horror masters the other year, Ma- where, Masters of Horror. Masters of Horror. Yes, I almost got it right. <laughs> yes, yeah, Good actually, that, that that would have been a good one to cover. Um, yeah, with yeah. a much superior Lovecraft adaptation. Maybe another yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Talk about. Yes, yeah. Those, so I only saw some of them. So. Yeah, I saw all of them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah there, there's some very gameable stuff in there. Yeah. yeah, let's hold that back for another time. Yeah. Matt. All right, number three for me. This is somewhat following on from what you said, in that fact it's very much a TV series that fits with a particular game. And again, Unknown Armies. Um, this one to me just screams Unknown Armies, the TV series. I'm rather glad that we've got all the way around apart from Paul and we haven't crossed over, um, stepped on anyone else's toes yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right, from 2006, um, another miniseries, ran for three episodes, but they were about two hours each. Yeah, an hour and a half, I think, but yes. (laughs) See, I love it how you can just, you just nod as soon as I start describing and know what episode, what what I'm going to be talking about. But um, no, definitely an unknown if this is what it is, If this is what I think it is, mm-hmm. I think it's a couple of years ago in my head, and I keep meaning to get around to watching it. <laughs> now you're telling me it's like seven years ago. Yes. So carry uh-huh. on. Can we go anywhere? Anywhere at the door, I think. My God. Since you found the key, has your life gotten better or worse? I need you to make me a promise. Not to tell anyone about the room or the key or anything else, all right? My little girl went into that motel room and she never came out. Yep, starts off fairly, yeah, I was going to say fairly innocuously, of seems to be a underground trade-off. Uh, so a man comes to buy an item, in this case a key, um, that he's then given. I think it's actually so there's, it's, something goes wrong in the deal. It's been a while since I've seen it now. But um, he ends up running away with it, and he ends up getting caught in a police station, which is where one of the most memorable images for me stands. 
and that there's a CCTV camera that looks down over the door, one, one seeing it from the inside of the room, one seeing it from the outside. You see this man running down a corridor, using the key to go into the room. The door opens in one of the cameras, but doesn't in the other. As he shuts, uh, shuts the door, the cop then opens the door and runs through into this room with the second camera. So what, what happened to the guy in the middle? He ends up in The Lost Room. TV series, The Lost Room. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's essentially a story of what happened when an incident, it's never fully explained because hell, even the characters in the show didn't know what happened. Um, an incident takes place in a motel room that then afterwards just doesn't exist anymore, at least not in our reality. But there are items which keep filtering back, and in particular a person as well as the prime object. Um, that have odd powers, and there's a comb that when you ran it through your hair stopped time, there was the key that opened the door to the room so that you could then use the door to open um, that room to open up into any other door on the planet. And the cop who, when eventually he gets possession of the key, ends up losing his daughter by accident into the room. And it's the rest of the, the miniseries, essentially his quest to try and get his daughter back. And meeting the individuals that are driven by obsession to find these items, um, either for their own personal gain or for whether they want to use them in occult experiments to try and bring the room back or to try and find out more about what the incident was, the cults that surround these organisations that mimic very much like the New Inquisition from Unknown Armies definitely is one that's almost with the serial numbers filed off. All you're missing is Alex Abel and his vast amounts of money behind them. Um, down to the almost lone sleeper agents that are trying to stop these items from get, um, being proliferated around the US and trying to work out, again, what, what is actually happening amongst all this weirdness. And yeah, for, it's, a, it's a gem, honestly. I mean, five, five, six hours of TV that you could easily sit down and watch it in one go is... Mm. Yeah, just that's, that level. It's, it's effectively, if you wanted to run an Unknown Army scenario, it should be mandatory viewing to capture the style, the essence of what Unknown Armies is. And again, that not every, everything is resolved. You don't know what happened in that, in that room. Yeah, I, but part of that, I think, is because this were, they, they anticipated making a longer series out of it. This was almost like a pilot. And the, the, the creators apparently pitched this to the Sci-Fi Channel, who showed the original miniseries. And I, I think you know, they, they wanted too much money or something like that. And so the Sci-Fi Channel went away and you know, said no. And then a couple of years later, started producing a show called Warehouse 13, mm -hmm. which has got, I mean, it, it's nowhere near as imaginative or clever as, as the elements in the last room, but there are an awful lot of elements in common with it. You know, this, this running around trying to find all these strange objects and contain them and so on, that, that's the premise of Warehouse 13 as well, uh, but it's, it's much cheaper than the last room was. <laughs> and rather considerably longer, but yes. was, I still think as a, as a standalone story, it, it just works. There's, yeah. it's, it's nice round off with the, with the hint that it could have gone further but didn't need to. Yes, yeah, yeah, it works perfectly well self-contained. Yeah. Okay, I've got a little bit of news I should mention, actually, that uh, mm. we got a bit of feedback from our fan. <laughs> <laughs> Only the one! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, our, our keeper at uh, the club last night, Milton Keynes Club, uh, Matt Mott, mentioned that he'd been listening and was very much enjoying it. Um, and I asked him about the sound quality, Scott. Oh, should I, talk, <laughs> should I mention that, Matt? I, I, I just want to see Scott squirm, so go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to squirm, I'm just going to hit someone. <laughs> so I say, how's the sound quality? Because it did distort on one or two shows a little. And Matt said, well, 
the first show, the quality was really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so maybe we should explain to the listeners. On the first show, Scott couldn't find the wire for his mic, so we just recorded straight onto my iMac. <laughs> on the table in between us. Yeah. On, on the po- on the pot of turning turning thing, whatever they call. What is the wheel? The wheel. That's it. Yeah. wheel. And since then, we've had the mixing desk and mic on a stand and, and everything. Um, <laughs> Scott's shaking his head and looking glum now. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that, yes. Might yes. Thanks. The habits of a lifetime. Well, th- 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 thanks for the feedback, then, Matt. You're you're, you're off the Christmas list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, not not me anyway. No, no, the other Matt. I'll just make a I'll just make a point of just killing every NPC that he ever starts monologuing with. Bang! Oh, yes. <laughs> that is a good move. That's that's a signature move of yours. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Whenever 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 an NPC starts to tell us his story. Matt kills him quickly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we don't want to know the facts about what's going on. Hey, in the, in the Dark Ages scenario we played, it worked! Yeah, yeah. So Muttering Grumbling didn't even get a chance to fire off a single spell. Grumble, grumble. Ha 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 ha. Crossbow to the base. <laughs> <laughs> Medieval equivalent of a shotgun. <laughs> okay, so uh, my last choice. Well, I've always liked... Um, Films that seem to come from another place, really. So, um, Channel 4 again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> okay, that was good. Again. Um, so, I remember watching Videodrome for the first time, um, uh, Cronenberg's film. Um, that's a pretty strange experience. And then there's a part... I mean, there's the part where he puts the VHS tape into his stomach and, and so on. But they tune into this weird TV channel that seems to, that isn't on the normal broadcasting channels, and they intercept it, and it's very, very disturbing and strange. And as I sit there watching it, I think, you know, if I played around my TV, maybe I could pick that channel up, but I don't really want to. Um, I get the same feeling watching Eraserhead at the start of Eraserhead with the guy with the um, you know the, the kind of gear stick shifts up in the little cabin as if he's in control of everything or something and it's kind of another worldly place that this is being broadcast from and I found that with Jam yes oh boy I, this this <laughs> came so close to being on my list astonishing sod ape welcome um, a, a production. I I do just make it into the uh, the modern century, <laughs> into the millennium. Uh, from two thousand, uh, a series, a short run series on on uh, Channel Four again, late night Channel Four, uh, which is a commercial channel over here, but it was broadcast a half hour. Um, show broadcast with no advertising in it, with no break for adverts. But con- considering and considering some of the material in there, I, I imagine some advertisers might have thought it was toxic. How many other shows don't get adverts? Mm. True. I'm thinking, going off a quick anecdote, wasn't one particular of their sketches recorded the most complaints uh, at the time? Yes. Yeah. The one with the plumber fixing the baby. Yes, yes. that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think that was before his other show on um, Brass Eye yeah, they, about they, paedophilia. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Oh, same guy, lots of complaints. So, yeah, yeah the, the, the person in question being Chris Morris. Uh, he's something of a genius, recluse, really. Yes, yeah. He's, he's, a he's, he's a very, he's a very um, yeah, intermittent filmmaker, but when he, he makes stuff, it's, it's exceptional. Uh, he's, he's only done one feature film to date, which was Four Lions, which is Yeah, it's amazing. by far the most commercial of his work, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> and most recently, he's been working on an HBO series called Veep. But he, he's only directing episodes there, not not writing any. Um, so this show was um, kind of a, a, a comedy show. I guess it kind of fitted yeah. into, if you wanted to shelve it somewhere, it would kind of go with the, 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 the comedy. Yeah, sketch but, comedy. Very but black really, sketch comedy. But really, I watched a little the other day with, with uh, my 15-year-old daughter. And, you know, it's we both agreed afterwards it's mainly unsettling there's a few bits where you do laugh out loud but it's mainly just very unsettling it's a mix of ambient music strange bizarre humor and disturbing imagery uh, there's one scene um well a recurring um character is is the doctor um who is you know different stories each week but uh, the one in the first episode he is diagnosing patients with symptomless coma, coma, symptomless coma. And you can see these people are perfectly fine, but he's diagnosed them with symptomless coma and he treats them as such. And the, the patient's relatives are coming in and talking to him, talking to the, the patient. And, and it's um, eventually it's pretty apparent that he's just killing them off. I think he's, mm. he's kind of jumping up and down on their chests and, and he's, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's just inexplicable and, and weird. Yeah, there, there, there was another similarly macabre one where uh, someone had decided that he'd reached the peak point in his life, so he was just going to have his funeral now. Oh, yes. Um, and, yeah, he had this, this service, got his you know, family and friends together, delivered his own eulogy, and then had himself buried alive at the end. Uh, the, um, I think it was in the opening credits for one of them where there's the attempt at suicide and so they're like, oh, your plans are botched by some Vauxhall Nova uh, as it, this it runs through the scene and destroys the apparatus that he got set up. Yeah, yeah I, Jam is... It, it's almost like a scientific experiment to see how far you could push black comedy before it becomes unbearable. Yeah, the camera just watches some guy jumping from a first floor um balcony or second floor i guess if you're in america um again and again and the guy just kind of goes back in and jumps again you can see he's hurting himself and the narrator just tells the story that the guy didn't want to jump once from the 40th floor in case he changed his mind so he decided to jump 40 times from the first story <laughs> um but apparently he didn't change his mind <laughs> and then it just kind of and, and not only is it ambient music in the background but the, the production of the, mm. the, the visuals is kind of has that same kind of ambient flow things just blur in and blur out yeah. and there was a sequel well there was a rerun of the series um, in which it was called Jam with several A's um, where everything was just distorted and played around within the production so yeah. it just more incomprehensible and stranger. It was the same shows, just remastered, 
much more weirdly. Yes. Yeah. Almost unwatchably so in some and cases. And on the DVD, there's the on the DVD menu, there's the option to watch the miniaturized version. Yes. Which is the same thing, just miniaturized. So that's Christopher Morris. Um, I, I oh and and yes, if, if you like jam. Uh, it, the, it actually came out of a uh, a radio series, Blue Jam, Blue Jam mm. which was on Radio 1 back in the 90s. And uh, yeah, they got a lot of complaints about that as well. But there's a lot of the same sketches in there and a lot of the same mix of ambient music. And I, I know last time I went looking for it, I found it online, possibly on YouTube. Mm. Um, certainly if you look for Blue Jam, you should be able to find a lot of these. And yeah, if, if you like listening to audio stuff, which... Yeah, you're listening to a podcast now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're worth seeking out, but yeah, be, be warned, they are disturbing. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you, you kind of think, oh, this is going to be funny. I'll put it on, and it and it reminds me of when we watched Raise the Head, and mm. people put it on expecting you know a bit of a smile on their face, and then you think this is a sketch show, and then people's faces start to drop, and yeah. And occasionally there is a laugh out loud moment, but for the most part, you, you can, it's just a bit weird and disturbing. But that's the kind of atmosphere that, if I can get that kind of atmosphere in my games, then I'm quite happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and I know I've had it a few times, and I've had it a few times with you, Scott, in the uh, My Life with Master and cutting off the nurse's legs. Oh, God. Yes. For me, I think the, the one the, that stands out is probably Blackwater Creek. When I realised, I've been drinking what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no spoilers, Matt. No, no, no that's why I stopped there. <laughs> oh, we managed to do it, but we were not treading on each other's toes again. Yes. We, we didn't mention a lot of our favourite shows, I guess. I mean, some of my favourite shows mm. would be, you know, The Wire. Well, people's general favourites, The Wire, Surprise, Thornbirds. But- <laughs> yes, yeah. actually, the the one that it really surprised me that you didn't bring up, considering your your obsession with it and the fact that it fits in uh, the horror genre quite well, is Twin Peaks. Well, that was my that was my substitute. I only had one extra. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might go for that, so I didn't I didn't uh, choose it on my list. But I, I think we'd all go for Twin Peaks. Yes. <laughs> all right. So um, mm. is that about wraps it up for tonight? So our our top three. Not necessarily our top three best ever TV shows, but our top three kind of influential TV shows on on our horror gaming. Is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're the good friends of Jackson Elias, and we bid you good night. Good night. And good night.